0: Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Sally, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. And for all the listeners and watchers out there, you'll be able to see from her background that we're going to be talking about Elvis Presley today. Someone that, for me, I mean, I'm disconnected. I think a lot of my generation is. But uh, through the episodes I've done on Elvis Presley, I've started to learn more about the man uh, behind the blue suede shoes. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Sure. I'm Sally Hodel. Uh, I am the author of Elvis Destined to Die Young, also the author of... Destined to Fly: The Story of Ron Strauss uh, from Iowa to Elvis. He he was the pilot who flew the Lisa Marie. So his life story is fascinating. He flew you know Elvis for those two years from 75 to 77, but was also hijacked as a pilot and uh, flew 3,400 hours during Vietnam. So just a really great story. Um, but the success of Destined to Die Young certainly allowed me to to tell that story and and to continue. Uh, this work for Elvis. That's really important. I am a journalist by training, but I'm also a a lifelong fan. Um, And I've, I've seen over the years that he has been, you know, he's the biggest victim of sensationalism and romanticism, I think. And the history has kind of gotten lost in that. And uh, Elvis Presley culturally shifted the universe in 1956. And, and it's, he's still doing that. So, you know, I hate that he kind of gets lost in Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it's fun to read about, but he is a historical figure. And the same way that Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, you know, radically changed the way we live. Elvis radically changed the culture that we live in. So uh just trying to, you know, remind people of that and then also explain away his um some of the negatives that have haunted him. And and again, just make sure that he's viewed as a historical figure. And and I hope I've done that with with both my books, but certainly Dustin and Diane.
0: Why do you think there's so many different versions of Elvis Presley out there? Like, it seems like a bunch of different fans and individual groups that starts to split off into where you can really have, you got the Elvis karate, you got the Elvis movies. I mean, he did so much, so it only makes sense. But there's so many versions to what people really are intrigued about Elvis, whether it's the drugs, whether it's the life that he career he had in Hollywood, or whether it's his music. Why do you think there are so many different fandoms?
1: Sure. I, I think it's a combination of things. And uh, First of all, you know, 1950s Elvis is iconic. He changed music as we know it. And if you look at, you know, the top 100 songs of that time, you know, it's it's Frank Sinatra and it's Perry Cuomo and it's Tony Bennett and it's the Andrews sisters. And then you see Hound Dog, you know, coming up the list and Don't Be Cruel. And when you compare it to that, you can see how radical he was at the time. Um it's kind of hard for us to understand that now, but it was very radical in the 1950s. And of course, the way he looked and the way he sounded and the way he moved, everything was different, right? And then the 60s he has his own look and he does a lot of the movies that are memorable and iconic. And then the 70s with the jumpsuits. So there are three very different Elvises to start with, right? He defines each of those decades in his own way. And the music is very different with each decade too. Um, but overall, I think it's his story that intrigues fans, that makes us fans so committed, keeps us coming back. Um, You know, he really does epitomize the American dream. And I say all the time, like his story has really been told for a long time as one of self-destruction, but it really is a story of survival. And first he survives extreme poverty and then extreme fame, like no one before him had really encountered. And then all of these health issues, you know, that were long hidden, that he was Dealing with and mostly self medicating through. So it really is a story of survival. And I think that American Dream type story does resonate with people. And the other part of that is that Elvis stayed very real, you know, and he was very connected to his fans. And the really interesting part about Elvis is that we have Graceland. You know, what other star has a place (laughs) for people to gather? And a lot of people don't realize that Graceland was very accessible to the fans even when Elvis was alive. He would meet fans at the gates, he'd have them up to the house. Um, you know, fans were allowed to kind of camp out inside the gates on the lawn there at night. And uh, that was from the time he bought it until the time he passed. Uh, he was welcoming to his fans there. And since he passed, it has given fans a place to gather. And I, I do say, like, everyone, even if you're not a fan, you should try to experience the candlelight visual on August 15th, which is on the, anver- the evening of, you know, the anniversary. He died on August 16th. And it's held every year. And on a small year, it's 10 to 20,000 people. Together, and on the big anniversaries you know the 50th will be the next big one it's going to be an astronomical amount of people and uh there's nothing like it no one people don't show up for anyone else like that it's pretty remarkable
0: do you think graceland and kind of was a piece of elvis like it kind of envisioned elvis or like a, a, a symbolistic version of elvis i mean he spent a lot of time there i think for ooh, a couple of years or so because he just wasn't touring or he wasn't performing but I've heard stories uh, from researchers who've talked about Graceland being this kind of representation of Elvis. And I mean, even from the rooms he designed, like the jungle room. I, I've never been. I heard you've, you've been. That's amazing. I got to know what that experience is like. But the jungle room, all these rooms, you really start looking at it. It's like if someone gave you a billion dollars, but you were kind of a kid and you were like, I want to design rooms how I want to design. And I'm like, that's what I would have done. I, w- I wanted a swimming pool in the basement.
1: Right. Well, you have to get there. It is a, it's a time capsule. It's a time warp. You know, it, you walk through those doors and you are transported and I've toured, you know, I'm in Memphis probably almost 10 times a year now with work. Um, so I tour the mansion, you know, three and four times a year. And I keep going back because it does have that, um, just that value. Like you, you can, it feels like Elvis is home. And it also feels like you're stepping back in time. And it really is a, a remarkable feeling. So I highly recommend that you get there. And in uh certain times of the year, I know January, they might do it in August too, but definitely in January, they do evening tours. And to be in the house at night is a totally different feeling because we know that's when Elvis was up, right? He would sleep all night, you know, sleep all day and be up at night. So to be in the in the house at nighttime and experience the way he would have experienced it is also a really unique, you know, thing to do. Um uh, but yeah, I think Graceland is Elvis, Elvis is Graceland. And again, it represents his accomplishments. We, it's hard to understand just how dirt poor Elvis was and how much he struggled and how much his family struggled. And to make the leap that they made in 1956 from nothing to everything, um, you know, it would take most families five, six generations to make that financial leap. And he did it in one year. So that's that's complicated. That's hard for the Presleys to deal with. You know, they don't necessarily understand how to handle that much money. And we see all the struggle of that throughout his life. Uh, but Graceland is the representation of his success. And first and foremost, Elvis sees himself as a provider. And we have to remember that we have to recognize that that he is not setting out to. Culturally shift the universe and create this sound and take rock and roll to another level. That was not his agenda. You know, even though he's artistically brilliant and very creative, his agenda was to pull his family out of poverty. And he thought that music might be a way that he could do that. So, um, again, it answers a lot of questions when we look at Elvis as a provider, because then when he's sick and he should stop and he doesn't stop, he just takes more medication so he can keep going. It's because so many people rely on him. And he says that, you know, he's on the phone before that last tour with two different people who say, Elvis, you're sick. You need to stop. And he says, I can't. Too many people rely on me. So he first and foremost saw himself as a provider. And I think Graceland always represented that. You know, he bought that house for his parents, specifically for his mother she passed not long after you know he purchased it but he has big beautiful homes in california and he keeps coming back to memphis and he comes back to memphis all the time it represents his roots it represents that you know southern boy that he is at heart but it also represents that success that he was he was really proud of and not just for his own accomplishment but because it literally pulled his family out of poverty and that's aunts uncles cousins members of the memphis mafia it's a lot of people
0: i wouldn't call myself a fan because i've only focused on his music i've only known him from this music but i'm hoping you could educate me more about his early life how did he go from nothing to something so i can just better understand the man
1: sure well he moves a dozen times in his first 13 years in tupelo um you know they can't keep a house because they don't have the money vernon is going from his father vernon is going from one job to another um his uncle noah was kind of a community leader in that little, you know, it's like five blocks and these people all take care of each other. And I was fortunate to interview Guy Harris, who is someone that grew up with Elvis and Larry Presley, who was a cousin of Elvis and uh, both lived in Tupelo their whole life. And they both talked about how on those, you know, five blocks or so, everybody just took care of each other. You didn't go to the welfare office. If you needed something, you hoped that a neighbor had it and they had gardens. So, you know, Guy Harris would say, You might not get what you want for dinner. It might be a couple of carrots and a potato, but we got food and, um, but they did take care of each other. It's important to recognize that because when we see Elvis's generosity later in life, it was a learned behavior when he was on the receiving end of it in that small community that took care of each other. And then, you know, Vernon and Gladys and um, a couple other family members, they moved to Memphis and it's in hopes of, finding a better life. And they really didn't. The first place, one of the first places they live in Memphis is a boarding house and it is shared space with multiple families. And even that was hard for them to afford. So um, it was a constant, constant struggle. And again, Elvis knew that if anyone was going to turn that tide, it was going to be him. But my book goes back even more further than that. Like there's, there's land ownership over and over generation after generation. In, on both sides of the family tree and they continue to lose that land and that really is why graceland is the place where elvis lives the longest other than lauderdale courts which was government housing which is where he lived for most of high school and that was you know that was seen as a, a great opportunity for the family to again improve their
0: circumstances who was the most influential in his life
1: well, uh, you know, his he was very close to his mother, and that's talked about a lot, right? I think that relationship is romanticized a little bit because I do think it was a normal, <laughs> reasonable relationship that he had with his mother. And sometimes it's, it again, it's just romanticized in a in a way. You know, even his death has often been talked about how he just wanted to be like his mother and be with his mother. You know, his mother dies at 46. Elvis dies at 42. Very similar period of degenerative health so that's always been kind of romanticized too like he just couldn't live without Gladys, and I don't think any of that's true because in his own words he talked about how you know he dealt with the grief of losing her but she was a huge influence on him but so was his father you know the three of them really were this insular little world that they created for themselves through all of this struggle like every day life was a struggle and they had to rely on each other to get through it so again how many rock and roll stars hit it big and then buy a house and live there with their parents. They might buy a separate house for their parents, right? But Elvis always wanted his family close. And the for the entire time he had Graceland, his grandmother lives there, you know, cause his mother passes, his father remarries, they move to um, a house behind Graceland. But his grandmother lives at Graceland the whole time. So I always say how many, again, how many rock and roll stars take, you know, ladies home to meet grandma. <laughs> but Elvis did cause he was very rooted in his family because home, was not a place because they moved so much, right? Home was the people.
0: How many myths, I mean, could you run me through some of the myths you are able to dispel in your book? I mean, I don't you mentioned earlier about the overworking and being sick and taking medication, but I thought a lot of that was just he was superly overworked by Colonel Parker, I think his name is.
1: Right, and that's a that is a great myth and you know, I have not thoroughly researched you know everything between Elvis and the Colonel and it's a very complicated relationship i mean it's it's an aspect of Elvis that you could deep dive into and never come out right trying to find those answers uh but i will say the movie um you know i was not a huge fan of the movie because i'd say it's 20% accurate and where it does the biggest disservice is the relationship between Elvis and the Colonel you know it makes it look like the Colonel was pumping him with drugs and getting him on stage and and that is not accurate um obviously the Colonel only represented Elvis. He would have wanted Elvis in his best form. Um, there, there are you know, no one is. Everyone in Elvis's story, everybody, the fans especially, kind of always want to pick a victim. Like it's his, it's the Colonel's fault, or it's the Memphis Mafia's fault, or whoever's fault. And when we play that blame game, the truth really gets lost, and you end up with all these myths, like you're talking about. And the Colonel is not all good or all bad. You know, he's both. And and that's hard to balance sometimes because you know that sometimes the tour schedule doesn't make sense and sometimes it is too hard for Elvis uh but Elvis loved being Elvis and Elvis loved performing Elvis also loved spending money so you know he buys the Lisa Marie that it's a Convair 880 it's a very expensive it was a delta airliner so it's very expensive to run that it burns fuel like crazy and then they have two pilots a flight engineer and a stewardess on call 24 hours a day so it was very expensive to own that airplane again with the cars the jewelry he gave so much of it away elvis has to work so hard oftentimes because he spends so much it is there's a lot of truth in that so um back to your original question about the myths definitely with his death you know elvis was a very ill man and that's really what destiny die young delves into so by the time he passes in 1977 he has disease or disorder, nine of the 11 systems of the body, always written off as kind of the end result of the prescription medication problem, which was a problem. But testimony and evidence shows that at least five of those were present prior to fame, most likely since birth. Uh, you know, So they couldn't have been the end result of the medication. He was absolutely self-medicating through a lot of disease that he, he hid from people.
0: Did you interview anyone that expressed some of the pain that he was going through that a lot of people didn't see?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, both of his nurses were resources for me. I met with both of them. Dr. Nick, his main doctor, had already passed, but his co-writer for his book shared transcripts and things with me uh, that were really helpful. But his nurse, uh, his main nurse, Tish Henley-Kirk, is a, has become a very good friend of mine, but initially met her just doing research for the book so of course she was an incredible resource but uh people like his hairdresser larry geller was very vocal from the very beginning about how much pain elvis was in how much he was suffering um his cousin uh billy smith talks about how you know elvis's demise is very much like his own father's and that's the thing you know so it, this theory is rooted in the fact that elvis's maternal grandparents were first cousins so that doubling of the gene pool creates a lot of issues and we see that and not just with elvis you know the real evidence of this is in that previous generation that first generation output after that first cousin marriage so gladys his mother she dies at 46 you know she has three brothers who die 46 48 i think 54 all heart liver lung related issues all very young all four-year period of degenerative health gladys is very similar to elvis she does not take the same medication she doesn't have the pressure to be in a rock and roll star um so a lot of people did see some of these similarities but again especially like elvis it's he's a man in the 70s so that first of all people don't talk about their health you know and he wants to be seen as the strong male and then he is elvis presley he is he is surrounded by these guys who are his friends, but he is also the boss. So he doesn't want to appear weak. He does not share his health problems with them. So they do see him take a lot of medication and oftentimes too much. You know, Elvis's big problem with medication is that he has other doctors bringing him some at times. Like they would exchange you know, a bag of pills or some concert tickets and things like that. And then he'd have drug interactions because he doesn't understand what he's doing. And then his Main doctor, Dr. Nick, would have to figure all that out. You know, what did you take? What was happening? Um, But the guys don't understand. They have no idea that he is as sick as he is because he does keep it from them. But he has three main hospital stays. They're all well documented. Uh, There is an aspect of detox when he goes in for those hospital stays. He was taking too much of something. But they run tests and he leaves knowing that there's more wrong with him than he goes in for.
0: Now, if you believe that theory, I would think that you would have to get a lot of blowback from fans that would just be, because there is a myth out there that Elvis was some dumb southerner and it doesn't make sense because I'm pretty sure he was well-educated. He read, I mean, he read a good deal. And plus he was talking about like new religious ideas and beliefs, which is way advanced for that time period of thinking.
1: Uh, Elvis was very intelligent, very intelligent. He, I, his pastime, and he talks about it, is reading and he reads ferociously and Uh, It is, he does delve into different religions he wants to know about, but also his own health. You know, there is a point when he's having serious problems with his colon, which were lifelong problems. Uh, His mother, his aunt, um, his cousin, Annie Presley was Gladys' cousin and with them all the time when Elvis was little. And she's on record talking about how Gladys as a young mother had a hard time with Elvis and the constipation issues. So it was a lifelong problem for him. Um, But when he had... More serious problems with his colon. He asked Doctor Nick for a book, you know, specifically on that because he wanted to learn more. And he owns the PDR. Every year he's getting updated versions of the PDR, which is the Physician Desk Reference. So when he is feeling a certain way or he has ailments, he's looking up, you know, different medications that could help with these problems. And again, it's a double edged sword. You know, everyone needs to be their own advocate for their own health. But Elvis gets a lot of confidence in the um, information that he's gathering, and he feels very confident in what he's doing with the medication. And, and that does become a problem, too. And we also have to remember that, you know, again, he was so poor, his access to health care, the fact that he can, you know, provide that for his family as with a family physician, you know, a doctor who's always there, a nurse who's always there, uh, that is seen as a measure of his own success, that he has access to this health care. And at that time, a lot of the medications he was taking for very real health ailments, people didn't understand the medication either, you know, or the, you know, the, the damage they could do until the 70s. People thought Dexergen had the same addiction level as caffeine. They had no idea. So, and again, he's lifelong insomniac. That's one of his health issues. And from a very young age, and there's only a few reasons why children and teenagers have insomnia, and the book delves into that. But, you know, sleeping medication is one of the first things that he really does need in order to be Elvis Presley. But again, you know, Lunesta and Ambien and things like that don't exist back then. So he's taking much stronger medication in over 20 years. Uh, they have tolerance and addiction levels. So a lot of it was just, um, you know, so much was not known. And when you think about the fact that we did not have an MRI or a CAT scan until the 80s, all they're really dealing with is x-ray images. So when it comes to something like his colon, they had no idea how bad it was until the autopsy because they just didn't have the the technology to understand exactly what was wrong with
0: him how many medications was he on and which i mean for like what you mentioned the colon but is there any other specific examples you could show where he was hurting and really medicating from and is it from that like you mentioned the theory about the cousins and the grandparents being cousins is this all from that or did he have trauma did he have something where he shouldn't have made it or he was in a hospital for extended period of time when he was a kid and
1: they didn't have access or money for healthcare, So there, there was one time he had, he had recurrent tonsillitis, even as an adult. Uh, and he should have been hospitalized a couple times as a kid, probably should have had them removed, but they just didn't have access or money, you know, in rural Mississippi at the time. Um, so yes, yeah, some of it is easily traced through the family tree, a great deal. Like I said, five of the nine, we can trace. Uh, we see the heart, liver, lung issues, kidney problems in the family tree, uh, we see that and alpha 1 antitrypsin deficiency is something we know he was a carrier for cuz it's in the autopsy report that affects either your liver or your lungs so we now understand that you know gladys died from alpha 1 which is a genetic liver disease where her own doctor said you know i can't figure out what's going on with her liver it looks like hepatitis but it's not typical hepatitis and now we can understand you know what ultimately killed Gladys, which is very important to understanding Elvis, as a carrier, it's one of few genetic diseases that can impact you. And and we see that with Elvis's lungs. He has lung issues at at times and his liver is enlarged and fatty. And of course, the medication use would have caused some of that. But there are people on record saying, you know, that analyzed all this, uh, saying that there was something wrong with his liver, that it wasn't functioning. His heart is not functioning properly. Um. He also has something called hypogamma which again, they didn't know until his autopsy, but that means he can't fight infection properly. His body doesn't create T cells like it should. So when he, in the 70s, when he has, he's constantly dealing with flu and things and needing more medication to kind of prop himself up to continue being Elvis, they don't realize that he really is very sick and he cannot fight infection and he's getting sick more often than he should. Uh, the insomnia is the nervous system. Um, the megacolon digestive system, his his heart issues, you know, he ultimately dies of cardiac arrest, his heart is enlarged, Um, high blood pressure is constantly a problem for him. He has severe arthritis, because when you have all these gut problems, we now know that that's creating all that inflammation, right? So when he says his body hurts all over, it really does hurt all over, because his gut is not, you know, removing waste like it should, and it creates this inflammation throughout his body. So, so much of this they wouldn't have understood in the 70s, even if they had known prior to the autopsy, right? Even today, it's hard to treat an immune system disorder. So something like hypogamma globulinemia would have been very difficult for them to treat in the 70s. Um, He lives at night, right? So this is a huge detriment to his immune system problem because now we know that low levels of vitamin D are gonna compromise your immune system. So here he has this problem and you know he had to be vitamin D deficient, just something that simple that was not understood in the seventies, no one supplemented vitamin D. And even that would have been probably a huge help to Elvis. So a lot of this is, you know, the times that he is born in with Gladys, um, passes in 58, they don't know what alpha-1 antitrypsin is or how to treat it. And of course, they didn't know that Elvis was a carrier or had complications from it. And likewise with the three uncles who, you know, they suffer heart attack and stroke in their forties. That's very young to suffer from heart attack and stroke episodes. So uh, there's a great deal of, of genetic disorder going on there. And it's hard to believe. It's hard to understand with Elvis, right? Because he looks so perfect on the outside and he is so unique, um, the most unique performer, you know, in looks and sound and Like I said, culturally shifted the universe. It's hard to to understand that on the inside, he was very flawed. And a lot of it was from a first cousin marriage in his family tree.
0: When it comes to the medications that he was using, do you think a lot of that might have contributed to some of his impulsive decisions or some of his behaviors, maybe with career choices or things of that sort?
1: Um, Not necessarily career choices so much because it was always kind of decided between Elvis and the colonel, Uh, but definitely some of his behavior at times. Um, There are times when he does take too much when he has access to too much. But we have to remember that. um, So towards the end, you know, Dr. Nick, who's his main doctor, says, you know, Elvis, you can't have control of your own medication, because there are times you take too much. And Elvis was kind of the, you know, because he had access to healthcare and saw that as part of his success and he felt like he was well-read. He was the kind of person who thought, well, if one works then two will work even better. Right. And that would get him into trouble at times. Uh, So Dr. Nick would give him his medication in packets and he'd get three packets of medication each night. And it would be for the insomnia, for the high blood pressure, you know, for painkiller, whatever it was and three different packets. So he, Elvis did not have um, access to everything. The doctor was controlling it. And again, if Elvis, really was this drug abuser who was just looking to get high um he would have fired Dr Nick and found another doctor because there were plenty of doctors who would give him whatever he wanted anytime he wanted so he knew he had health issues he knew he needed the medication to treat it and then of course there is the other aspect that it becomes a problem even the things he takes for his real ailments have addiction and tolerance issues over time and that becomes that becomes an issue and of course they he keeps saying, I'm in pain all over my body, my body hurts, and they don't really understand what he's dealing with. Um, and again, and I think it's 70, 73, he blows out his adrenal glands by taking too many cortisol injections to try to get rid of some of the arthritic pain. And once you blow out your adrenal glands, they rarely ever work well again. So he ha- that has to be medicated. And Dr. Nick does try to get those adrenal glands functioning properly, but again, proper adrenal gland function wouldn't have been fully understood in the 70s. It's a a complicated thing to treat even today. Uh, But I would compare that to Lyme disease today. You know how someone might have Lyme disease. They don't know they have it. They can't get out of bed. And you hear those stories all the time. Like, what's wrong with me? They can't get it diagnosed. And then they find out they have Lyme disease. And I would compare that to Elvis with his adrenal gland issues. It would have been impossible to continue being Elvis Presley without the medication. Once he blew out his adrenal glands.
0: Do you think that contributed to his weight gain later on in his life?
1: Absolutely. And his weight gain is one of those myths that has been blown out of proportion. If you look at Elvis, um, even from one week to the next, sometimes when he's on tour, he's bloated one day and thin again the next. Most of it was bloating. Most of it was water retention. Um, It's congestive heart failure that's happening towards the end there. Um, it's the medication that he's taking, you know, he'll take steroids to help with his colon problem, but then they create this other issue. And, um, there are several people on record who would say, like, I knew if Elvis was going to have a good show or not based on how swollen his hands were. So it's all correlated, you know, his face gets swollen, his hands and his stomach. And that stomach is part of the fact that his digestive system is not working like it should. And again, it's a lifelong problem. He has the problem from the time he is born. Um, They it is speculated that he had Hirschsprung's disease, which means the end of his colon is not wired with nerves so that you can't properly remove waste. Um, But it is a lifelong problem. It's documented as a child. It's documented as a teenager. And he himself in 1971, when he is, um, if you know Elvis the way it is in that concert, he looks phenomenal and he is very active on stage and he writes the TCB oath. And in it, he talks about all of his goals, you know, with karate or how he wants to treat people. And then at the end, he says, and freedom from constipation. So that even in 71, it was very painful. So by the time you get to 77, he is in a tremendous amount of pain. Uh, the bloating from that was was very, very severe. So the weight gain myth with Elvis really is a myth. And if you go to Graceland and you can see his suits on display, you'll be like, wow, <laughs> they're, they're tiny. I can't believe, you know, that he has been... There's been so much speculation and even like real journalists will say he was up to 300 pounds when he died. I don't think Elvis was anywhere even close to 250 ever. And he was, you know, almost six feet tall. So it really is grossly exaggerated and most of it is bloating from these different disorders.
0: How much of the myth is created because of the rock star lifestyle, which is like the drugs obviously, but then food, you have ease of access to any good food that you want. People always bring up, and I think the example is the sandwiches that he liked to eat, the banana sandwiches or- Yeah, and-
1: yeah, I think that is uh, because he's the king of rock and roll, right? We kind of get that gluttonous attachment to just his title. And then uh, because he is Elvis and because he did grow up so poor and because he is indulgent at times, you know, he shares so much. He shares his home. He gives away cars. He gives away jewelry. Um, he's very generous. But at times he's also indulgent with, you know, everything that he's achieved and everything that he has. And um he was a creature of habit when it came to food. So again, I think a lot of that's blown out of proportion. You know, he'd eat, he'd order, ask for the same thing, you know, for a week or a month at a time. And most of it was just good Southern, good old Southern food, you know? Um, But the sandwich is, is definitely one of those myths that has grown out of proportion. He ate it, he liked it, but there's the story of, uh, this is a good example of kind of the crazy food connotation that kind of gets, you know, stuck with Elvis all the time. Um, there's a story about how he flew to Denver just to eat the fool's gold sandwich. And he called the pilots. This is how the story is always told, you know, in pop culture, he called the pilots, said, I want to go to Denver. I want to get this sandwich and the sandwich fool's gold is what it was called. It's an entire loaf of French bread, an entire jar of peanut butter, an entire jar of jelly and a whole pound of bacon. And the story is always told that he went there and he ate it himself. I've seen Uh, TV shows in Australia on YouTube say that Elvis ate two of those every night at Graceland you know just crazy crazy stuff well the truth of it and you know we know this from Elvis's pilot is that the night they flew to Denver for that huge sandwich it was Lisa Marie's birthday can't remember if it was their eighth or ninth and they had to fly her back to California to be with Priscilla because they were already separated by that time and Elvis thought well let's Take the airplane to Denver, we'll get these big sandwiches that, you know, the Denver policemen who were friends with him had told him about, and we'll have a big birthday party on the airplane, which is exactly what happened. Those sandwiches were brought on board amongst a lot of other food. The sandwiches were cut up in slices. There was champagne and sparkling water and probably 20 people and everyone, including the pilots, saying happy birthday to Lisa Marie. And Elvis had a slice of the sandwich. He did not eat the whole sandwich. So do you see how those two stories are very different? You know, one is this gluttonous guy who just, you know, flies this huge airplane to Denver to eat this sandwich by himself. And the other is just a very real human being who decided to have a fun little birthday party for his daughter. And they did it on board the airplane with all this special food brought on. So that is a great example of what happens to Elvis. And I think it's really unfortunate.
0: Have you tried to understand why some of those get contributed to like a crazy rock star lifestyle? I mean, is it cause like, like I mentioned before, cause he did so much, but he did go to like, I wouldn't say the extremes on everything, but a lot more than the average person would do in anything in in at least three lifetimes.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, he loved being Elvis Presley and he said that more than once. Some of the things he does, you know, definitely show that. Um, but yeah, I think it's the sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? We love to read about it it's fun that sensationalized aspect is more fun than the truth sometimes i think there's a lot of people that don't want elvis to be normal they want him to be this this weirdo who lived in you know graceland and went out with you know the rings out all the time and the the jumpsuits right and all this decadent clothing and and that was part of who he was but he was also just a very normal southern kid who liked to do normal things you know and i always say it's kind of like he's known for shooting tvs right and that is abnormal behavior however As a boy who grew up in the South and always had guns, if he was still a poor guy, he would have been shooting beer cans in the backyard, right? So it just, (laughs) it becomes TVs because he can't because he's that wealthy. And it's not as abnormal as, you know, the again, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that get attached to him. But I think part of that is also Elvis's fault because he was so famous that he created this insular little world for himself, you know, and that's why he's living with his aunts and uncles and cousins. They all work at Graceland and his grandmother. And then he has the Memphis Mafia guys and then their families. And that little alternate universe that they created for, that he created for himself, um, allowed him to be as normal as possible. But it also, I think, lends itself to a lot of these myths because no one really knew what was happening inside Graceland kind of thing. And if you did know, you might be surprised to know just how normal it was, you know, that it was a family barbecue (laughs) or they were riding horses out back or whatever.
0: Can I ask through all your research into Elvis that if there's one thing that kind of stood out to you or something that you felt taken back by, not in a good way, but in a bad way, and then maybe we could talk about a positive as well. Hmm. I was upset that he didn't like doing his Hollywood movies. That's nuts to me. I've seen a couple of them, Blue Hawaii specifically. But I was like, I mean, that's his best best one. But even his younger ones, when he's uh, getting arrested and he's in bar fights and stuff like that, like that's they're, they're pretty good. He's a good actor.
1: He's a good actor. And there are some great films in that, in, in his, you know, what, 31 movies. It's just that they become so repetitive. You know, and if you watch the first movie through the 31st movie, you'll see it. You'll see it happen. and he felt it happen and that was very difficult for him um and that's i guess that's one of the negatives is the fact that he gets so locked in these movie deals right from 60 to 68 he doesn't perform live like what a tragedy is that and then we have the 68 comeback special which he's brilliant in but how much did we miss for those eight years that he's making movies he could have done both you know um And the soundtracks are not always good. That's a problem with the music. But there are some great films in there. You're absolutely right. And he was a very good actor because sometimes it's his acting ability that is carrying the script. You know, he has good comedic timing and he has screen presence, you know, like mad. So he really does carry the films. But when we ask ourselves, how does this happen to the king of rock and roll? How is he making these soundtracks, some of them which are horrendous, And he's the king of rock and roll. It's not even the kind of music he should be doing, let alone stuck making three movies a year. Um, How does that happen? And I think the best way to explain it again is to go back to his his roots and how poor he was. And you can't expect a guy who grew up in such poverty to say no to a million dollars for doing anything, let alone making a movie, right? So if he is really coming into, once he is successful for as many years as he was, you know, by mid 60s, I think that's when he was really feeling creatively frustrated because yes, he starts out wanting to be that provider for his family and to keep pull everybody out of poverty and then keep them there. He feels that responsibility, so he keeps making the movies. But he's also understanding who he is as a creative artist more and more and more. And we certainly see that in the late '60s and the '70s with the type of music that he records and the and the career choices that he makes. So I think he's feeling that creative frustration more, and that is the end result of being you know stuck in those those movie contracts that the colonel signed. Colonel signed, and Elvis did not have a choice on whether or not to do those movies, in my opinion. You know, there's debate about that, but I don't believe he had a choice. And uh, after a certain point, he does need better scripts and better material.
0: Why is it that the 60 movies seemed – everyone points to that as when he found his stride – or when he really kind of found, I guess it's more vacation y or whatever. He kind of found this family vibe. I, I think in the beginning, they were telling that he wasn't good for family entertainment or something like that. And then later on, he found it after he took a break. I think he went to the military and then came back and then went, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was in the army, 58 to 60. So that shifts everything. And all of a sudden, he's not this rebellious rock and roll guy anymore. You know, now he's someone who appeals to everyone more so. In the 50s, he was very much for the girls. You know, he was kind of that teeny bopper. We don't think of it that way now, but it was at the time, if you talk to any guy, because like, I didn't like Elvis when he came out, he was for the girls. And then he goes in the military and he gains everyone's respect. And then again, as in the 60s with the kind of music he does and in the 70s, his fan base continues to get much broader and it includes everyone, different ages, different genders, you know, everywhere. Uh, everyone becomes an Elvis fan. And and that was, a, you know, he wasn't sure if he'd have a career when he got back from the army. There was it was a big risk, but it did work out well because it does shift his image and he becomes more mainstream and not so rebellious. Right. But at the same time, he has to figure out what to do with that. And and, you know, again, he gets he's in the movies and that's that's the 60s are for the movies. (laughs) And there's pros and cons in that. Some people say that it was a great um, strategic move because the Beatles were selling out everything. And if Elvis had tried selling out everything against the Beatles, it might not have worked. Uh, So with the movies, you know, he was. He was just doing that. I and mean, Elvis isn't the only one who made those. Some of the movies are silly. Most a lot of them are very good, like he said. Some of them not so much. You know, the budget was low, the time frame was fast, and they're cranking them out. Uh, but he wasn't the only one who did that. Sinatra made a few bad movies too. So um, it wasn't just Elvis. A lot of that is just the time frame, and it's the 1960s.
0: Did you know, I mean, I'm sure you know, but he met Richard Nixon. That's crazy. I can't believe he went to the White House. Now, do you know the myth about that? Everyone said that he was going for a badge. I think that's the real story, that he was actually trying to get an narcotics badge. And everybody thinks he became an agent or something. I was like, I don't know. I looked through the documentation. I don't think that's true.
1: No, again, everybody wants um, Elvis to be... everything kind of these crazy big stories right because he has this crazy big image and a lot of times it really is just the normal average stuff he really did have a lot of respect for the office of the president uh he went there to get a badge he wanted that he was he collected police badges and he wanted that badge in particular uh probably for his collection but also uh for the idea that he thought it would be easier to travel with all of his medication and his guns and everything as well right like that would be a good badge to have um, but yeah, those pictures with Nixon, they are to this day, the most requested photos from the National Archives of Washington, D.C. So when you talk about the impact that Elvis has and he's still having it, um, those photos are iconic. That meeting was iconic. And again, it is it's just such an Elvis thing to do. Like, I'll just go talk to the president. And he'll help me. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> How much would you attribute all this to the comeback special? A lot of the remembrance of Elvis and why he's such a pop icon now. I mean, he had a great career before, but that comeback special is what every single person I've talked to on Elvis has pointed to has been like this redemption that happened where you really see that like this is might be the reason why we remember him today.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a shift for him. You know, if that doesn't happen, does he end up like Johnny Cash and playing Branson for a number of years before people understand how much we should respect Johnny Cash again? You know, Willie Nelson too. They all went through kind of a lull there where we didn't, I would, society in general, pop culture didn't understand how much we should respect some of these people, right? And then they they come back up again and, you know, people figure it out. But uh, that certainly could have happened to Elvis. He, he needed that 68 special to go as well as it did. And it was, it was brilliant and it leads to the Vegas years and the Vegas years lead to the touring. Right. So um, it does shift everything. It really does. But he was also, again, like I said, with the movies, if that's a negative that he gets stuck in that movie deal, it's that it's creatively stifling for him. And that's if, if it was an accident a little bit, you know, becoming Elvis Presley because he was really looking to pull his family out of poverty and the big bang of rock and roll, you know, that's all right. Mama was a song that they were just messing around with that son. And then it became this, huge shift so some of that is a little bit by accident and it takes all of us a little while i think to and there's different levels of it to really explore his creativity because he didn't set out to be this rock and roll star and we see it even when he's in the army his vocal range changes quite a bit because uh one of the guys that he spends time with had charlie hodge had actually been through music school and had proper training so he helps Elvis reach different levels of his voice that he didn't know he could reach or didn't have experience with so he practices for those two years and you know in the military and in Germany with Charlie Hodge and he comes out when you hear his recordings you know like now or never and songs like that it's a very different Elvis and it's because he had that time to work on his voice so um, you know we have to remember that he was not produced like or manufactured, like an American Idol star is today, or like any, most music today, you know, the person is manufactured. You have to have star quality. And if you don't sound perfect, they can make you sound perfect. It wasn't like that back then. You know, you, you grew as an artist over time because it really was a raw quality that got you noticed in the first place.
0: How long were you compiling all the research for your book and when did the information become accessible like, or at least more known or people start speaking about some of the issues that Elvis was facing during his life?
1: Sure. Well, it took me four years from idea to, you know, idea to holding the book in my hand. So that's research and writing. Most of that is research. I was just really fortunate that uh, documentation kept falling in my lap, which was really important. Um, and then, of course, you know, many trips to Tupelo and Memphis and interviewing people who knew Elvis and the fact that they were willing to meet with me and so open and honest. Uh, but to have that testimony and then have the documentation backed up, uh, that that was amazing. And as a fan and a journalist, it was amazing the way the dots kept connecting. And, you know, I talked to people that maybe had been missed before, uh, like Gladys's cardiologist, you know, Elvis's death is so connected to his mother's because it's so similar, but her cardiologist had already passed. So I reached out to his daughter, you know, just hoping that maybe they had had conversations. Well, it turned out that his daughter went on house calls with her father, uh, first to the Audubon house and then to Graceland. So she had a lot of firsthand knowledge, but she also still had medical records, you know, and, and things in writing that she could share with me. And that's someone that People hadn't talked to for, you know, decades. Um, so it was the way that the you know the information kept connecting. And the important part about "Dustin to Die Young" is that there are 32 pages of citation the that. And the reason for that is because Elvis is rarely given that level of journalistic integrity. So when you talk about all the myths and you talk about why did we, why do we want these big stories attached to Elvis when it's really a, you know something simple and normal, um, it's because so much has been written about Elvis that is not true. And because he's rarely been given that level of journalistic integrity, and because people love Elvis so much, they want to know more. So they'll read everything. So there's just a lot of there's a lot of fiction out there that has been sold as nonfiction, and that's why my book has the citations in the back. That level of journalistic integrity, uh, number one, so the information can be heard because this is it's radically different than how we, what we've been told. You know, in terms of Elvis's health and his demise. So that needed, you know, that kind of, um, again, journalistic integrity behind it. And I think that is why the book has been successful.
0: Do you find a lot of resistance when it comes to certain fandoms with their own independent theories? I mean, I've gotten some of that like on just making clips for YouTube about Elvis. I had someone comment something about he was a drug addict who died on the toilet and I just deleted it. I was like, I don't know why you would even say that. That's speaking of the dead, first of all, but I started noticing that people started having different theories whether it was about the sandwiches like you mentioned or if there was another scenario. Nixon, the Nixon thing for me is just fascinating. I love that story so much. But if I do a clip on that with multiple historians of Nixon, and then even historians of Elvis, you'll get a comment saying, oh, he was trying to be an FBI agent. It was like, well, that's not, no, that's not what documentation says.
1: I don't know what it is about Elvis that people are so sure about what they know. And that goes outside the fan base and inside the fan base. I think just in pop culture, you know, Elvis is as Americana as George Washington, right? Like everybody knows who George Washington, everybody knows who Elvis is, whether you're a fan or not. And then he might come with these preconceived ideas that you have for whatever reason. So outside of the fan base, I think there is that division too, like you said, that, you know, too many drugs and too much food or, and they probably don't know any of the music or movies, right? They just know the image. Yeah, and that's a, that's a real problem. Um, I I read somewhere once that a certain, like most millennials knew Elvis by his image, but had never heard a single song, right? So then you have all these ideas that get attached to him because you don't know anything about the man, anything about, you know, everything that he accomplished and just some of these sensationalized tabloid tidbits. That's a problem. Um, uh, So what was the other part of the question? I'm sorry. Oh, and then in in the fan base, that's what we were talking about. Within the fan base, you're right. There is that same amount of uh, division at times. And and it is complicated. And part of the reason is that the fans care so much. They just, they care about Elvis so much. They love Elvis. He's been a part of their lives sometimes since the 50s, right? Um, Depending on the age of the fan. So he's always been a part of their life and they really care. And unfortunately... Like I said in the beginning, the blame game gets played a lot amongst different groups of the fans. You know, it's like which woman was the best for him? Uh, did the colonel was the problem? The Memphis Mafia was the problem. Priscilla's the problem. And when you play that blame game, the history also gets lost, right? Because it becomes this sensationalized soap opera almost. Um, and these were very real people living a very real life. And I always say, you know, Elvis is as recognizable still on the entire planet <laughs> as McDonald's, Mickey Mouse, Coca-Cola. But Elvis Presley was a real person and we need to we need to let him be the real person. And when you look at his real story and again, look at it as one of survival and not self-destruction, it's it's an even more impressive story.
0: When you want people to remember Elvis or what they when they start to think about Elvis, what do you want them to think about?
1: Gosh, um, I think that he one that he represents the American dream, that anything's possible. Everything that he accomplished, you know, he was not expected to be the most successful citizen to come out of Tupelo, Mississippi. And he did that. And he did that through a lot of hard work and perseverance. I want people to know that he was a very strong person. I think there's this idea out there that he was weak and the colonel pushed him around. But I have to tell you that the Elvis of 1954 and 1955 and 1956, who came out and made radically different music and looked radically different and sounded different and went up against a lot of opposition for that. You cannot be a weak person and be Elvis Presley and be that different it's hard to be different um I would also say that you know he was a decent person he did the best he could most of the time and he was a good guy and anyone you talk to who knew Elvis will say that he was just a good decent man doing the best he could and you know fame was really really challenging his level of fame is a level of fame that no one had dealt with before and maybe since you know Elvis was it's hard to realize just how big he was and um And I think we can see that with how big he still is. You know, it's been 47 years since he died and he's still iconic, still very much a part of our culture.
0: And uh, where can people find your book? Obviously, any links you'd like to promote if you have a social media handles, uh, Amazon links, and I'll make sure I link it in the description as well.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's it's on Amazon as a ebook, a paperback, and an audiobook now. The audiobook is rather new the last few months. So I've been getting a lot of great feedback on that. Um, and then it's also on my website, which is elvisauthor.com. And all of those books are signed. So that's a great place to go.
0: And um, is there anything else you'd like to mention about Elvis Presley? At least, I mean, we talked about Graceland. I still probably might have a question about Graceland, but is there anything for you that you should know for like my generation or anyone out there who's new looking into Elvis for the first time?
1: Uh, you know, again, I listen to the music, listen to that's all right, mama, listen to some of that really early stuff from Sun, um, because it is brilliant. It's raw and it's original and it's brilliant. You know, Sam Phillips is a part of that. Uh, he was the producer there at the, at the studio, uh, Bill Black and Scotty Moore, the two musicians and then DJ Fontana, the fact that these guys come together, you know, it's, it's really amazing that they find each other and that they make the music they did, um, And then watch those Ed Sullivan shows, I think, for the young people especially. Get on YouTube. Like, when I was an Elvis fan in the early 80s, I didn't have access. YouTube didn't exist, you know? I didn't have access to to all that's at your fingertips. So get on YouTube and watch those first TV specials, TV appearances, especially Ed Sullivan's show. Um, You will see everything you need to see about just how impactful Elvis was, just how talented he was. And uh, I think you see some of his humbleness too, because I always love the Ed Sullivan shows when the girls start screaming and he kind of has to laugh a little bit because he can't believe it himself. you know. So uh, you see his personality come through on those two. And I I think that's really important. And that's when the movie was so big and the movie with Austin Butler was huge amongst young people, especially, um, even though most of it is not accurate. I thought, well, it's still a great thing if, People who have never discovered Elvis before get on YouTube and watch those Ed Sullivan shows. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is watch those early TV appearances because you can you can see how special it was.
0: I haven't seen the Elvis movie, but I besides the Colonel Parker stuff, did they get his career right at all? Anything about his trajectory on there or is it
1: a bits and pieces of it, of it are accurate, but there's um For me, I think it portrays Elvis as a weak person, and I don't see Elvis as a weak person. Again, I think you had to be an incredibly strong individual to be Elvis Presley and to continue to be Elvis Presley. Um, Some of the family dynamic stuff is off. Um, Yeah, and then there's, again, career-wise in the 70s, there's a scene where he pretty much loses it on stage and rants and raves at the colonel and... Elvis never would have done that. You know, he had a couple of moments on stage where he swore and things like that. But for the most part, it was very important to him that he kept his private life private and that he was very professional on stage and that he gave the fans, you know, what they paid for. So what they show in the movie, it just never would have happened in real life.
0: It was something when he was on stage from the live performances that I have seen that it seemed like he was opening up everything to everyone. He wasn't necessarily just because you can always look at me like I'm staring at my favorite artist on stage. You get that vibe when you watch some of these videos. But then if you watch Elvis's music, you don't get that. You kind of get like he's just kind of exploring and he's interacting with the band and he's kind of just in the moment rather than being in this head at all.
1: Yeah, that he loves it. Right. That he loves every moment that he's feeling the music. Um, uh, I think Elvis is the best interpreter of song, you know, whether it's a ballad or a rock and roll song. Like he just, um, he's really, really good at that. And, uh, yeah, one of a kind for sure.
0: Well, Sally, I really appreciate the time. I'm going to link all your links in the description. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you about Elvis and thanks for educating me and hopefully some younger listeners out there too about this, uh, mythical figure. Cause that's what he is.
1: Absolutely. And we can we can talk again if you come up with you know, more, if more people bring more questions to the table and all that, because it is important. He was a, a real man. And this this layer of information really does restore his humanity. And again, it makes his story even that much more impressive. And we can all learn from that in some way.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for next episode.